Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another special edition of the Celtics Lab podcast. I am your host, Alex Goldberg. Our usual host, Cam, is on the injury report. He's out for this one, but he'll be back soon. Uh, I am joined, as always, by Dr. Justin Quinn. And with us today to talk about the imminent NBA Finals matchup between your Boston Celtics and the Golden State Warriors is the Athletics' Mike Prada, the author of the new book, Spaced Out, How the NBA's Three-Point Revolution Changed Everything You Thought You Knew About Basketball. That's coming out November 1st. Mike, how are you? Thank you for being here with us today. Thanks for having me. You read the script very well. I'm impressed. <laughs> hey, you know, I, I used to be a theater kid back in the day. I'm sure that shocks exactly nobody who's ever listened to this podcast. So I have a little bit of experience reading scripts. Dr. Justin Quinn, how are you today, sir? Well, uh, regular viewers will note that I am not in my usual cramped space of an office. I am borrowing my uh, sister-in-law's. And I will not be moving to that new apartment I keep ranting and raving about. Uh, I'll tell people who care why if they want to message me on Twitter. I don't want to clog your ears with bureaucracy, but I am very sad. Excited about the, the playoffs, though. And that is exactly what we're here to talk about. Um, but first, we want to talk to Mike about the book, um, because Mike, I think this kind of leads naturally into the discussion of your book, uh, this NBA Finals matchup. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it seems to really make a lot of sense, given that the Golden State Warriors are really, in a lot of ways, the focus of this book as the kind of tip of the spear of this three-point revolution. Uh, and then in particular, you have the reaction to that as well, with the Celtics creating this just incredible, um, you know, historic level defense that in particular is great at forcing teams uh, to play away from their strengths and to stop the threes from falling. So, um, it, I mean, I guess I want to hear it from you first, Mike. Where do you see the kind of stuff that you talk about in the book playing out in this matchup? Yeah, I think it's everywhere. <laughs> um, you know, like you said, I mean, I, I think the Warriors are certainly the poster team main character of this period, but definitely not the only one. I think there's, you know, so many different, characters that have created the game that we have seen today and you see it's not necessarily about the threes the threes are the threes are the big backdrop of all of this you know we this is just how it is it's about what happens when because you're shooting threes the court is this big i'm extending my arms quite far <laughs> instead of this big and obviously it's literally the same size but you're playing you're using much less and more of it and yeah, Boston too is like a really good example, like you said, of sort of the defensive reckoning that has come with this time period. It's like, well, how do we cover this much more space with the same number of players? And Boston is a team that has kind of come about as close as you can get of any team of this era to hacking that solution. And again, it's almost less about where the shots come from. Uh, and it's just more so about just how you position the players within that space. And yeah, it's just such a cool matchup. It's a great coda to, it's certainly not something I planned uh, on it being this way, but it's a great coda to um, kind of the different ways. I talk in the book about how the Warriors and their big opponent, the Rockets, were kind of like two sects of the same religion that brought the whole team forward uh, in their style of play, you know, where they're both hunting a lot of the same types of shots and cover occupying the same spaces, but doing so in completely different ways. Boston is very much built in more of a Houston-esque plus better defense image. So it's a great matchup from that perspective. It's not, 
you know, offensively, it's a very similar style of play to how Houston plays. Maybe again, a little bit more going on. And then defensively, it's very much an extension of what Houston did and doing even, even better. So yeah, it's just, it's almost everywhere in a lot of senses. That's kind of why I wanted to write a book about this time period, because just literally the entire framework of the of the sport is completely transformed. And so it's really cool that we got this matchup to kind of prove it. Yeah, it's really interesting. And, you know, I think it, in some ways, like if you want to talk about this finals, maybe for volume two of the book, you know, in a couple of years, I think this would, make our, yeah. this would make a nice epilogue <laughs> chapter. It sure would. Uh, <laughs> now, I should say, like, uh, you know, there are multiple moments in the book where I say, like, kind of the Warriors did push the game forward and I had to kind of go back in the last stages and be like still pushing the game forward because of this revival. Uh, like, I think I had a section where it was like, they started the year really well and then they faded as the season progressed, but they're still poised to be a main character. And I recently had to go back and be like, well, let me change that up a little bit. They are still the main character. So yeah, it's crazy how they're still back here again. It's, it's really incredible. All right, Justin, I'm going to swing it to you. Yeah, so once upon a time, I wrote a really long thing called a dissertation, but that's a pretty different beast. But I do think there's a couple of things that we were expected as, uh, shall we say, anthropology padawans to kind of address in the creation and the marketing of that dissertation. And the first of which is the, the dreaded elevator pitch. Uh, and then the <laughs> second thing is, why you, why this? So... Why me is a great question. I have no fucking clue, but they approached me and they said that they were looking for somebody to write a book, kind of how to watch basketball a little bit smarter. Mm -hmm. uh, they have a football version. Triumph is the name of the publisher. Uh, they've done a lot of really great basketball books recently. Jake Fisher's Built to Lose, Seth Partnow's book, um, uh, The Midrange Theory, a number of others. And they're just like, hey, we're looking for a basketball version. And then over the course of like, I didn't pitch them the book. I didn't think I was ever going to write a book. It seemed way too daunting. In hindsight, I don't know what I was thinking, but it's done. So there you go. I'm sure you've had that experience, you know, writing uh, the dissertation. You feel like it's never going to end and you're just stuck in the middle and it's just such a grind. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. They, they they thought I'd be good at it. So I figured I'd give it a shot. Um, why me is, is like a question that every writer is always kind of existentially wondering. The elevator pitch is what you want to know, right? That's yeah. next. The elevator pitch. The elevator pitch is kind of what I described to you. The courts was once this big functionally. Now it is this big because of where players occupy. How has that changed everything? You have not, you, the, the court is wider. The same number of players play on it. That's going to change literally everything we thought we knew about the sport. From big questions like what is a superstar and what are positions and stuff like that to schematic questions like what is a pick and roll what uh how do teams like kind of create these plays to even you drill down and the part of the book i'm really most excited to reveal is kind of the last part which is player skills okay you need to shoot 25 footers like this now snap my fingers how does that change how you shoot the ball how does that change your vision how does that change the, the the chapter i'm really looking most forward to is stepping and dribbling where everybody says it's trap like Everybody travels now. So what is the new footwork for how you move and how do we get there? And why is that more important when the court is this big versus this big? Uh, and then, of course, building to defense. Um, so that's the elevator pitch. The court was this big. 
It's now this big. That should change everything we thought we knew about the sport. So let's dive into all the ways it has. Uh, I think it's sort of a very basic kind of way of thinking about it is still the same sport, but if you change, if you double the surface area, you're going to change the way people act within it. So I think that's kind of what happened like in the span of like less than a decade. And so that's what really inspired me to kind of write the book. That's the pitch. So early on in the history of the three-pointer, I mean, the first three-pointer, you know, this being a Celtics uh, podcast was launched by Chris Ford in mm-hmm. I think October of 1979 how has it evolved? Like, give me the history of the three-pointer. Like, it was for it kind of languished as like almost like a novelty shot for like the very yeah. early years. Like, how did it change? When did it change? Yeah, this is what the big early part of the book is, just to sort of get us there. But yeah, I think uh, one of the things that's really important to understand for the context of it is that it barely snuck through the NBA. Like, there was a lot of opposition to it. It started as something that was uh, in a defunct basketball league in the 60s, the ABL, the ABA adopted it. And so when it came, the ABA merged with the NBA, there was a huge backlash as to why are we taking this gimmick ABA thing and putting it in our league? Um, so there's a huge backlash to that. And to a lot of people, it was just shots are worth two points. So now you're telling me shots are worth three points. That just sort of screws everything up. That screws the whole strategy. So very divisive, but you know, there was a lot of wrestling and roughhousing going on. And there was a school of thought that if we put the three point line in, you know, we're going to open the game up. It's going to be more exciting. They called it a home run shot. That was kind of the, the descriptor. It passed. It needed a two thirds majority to pass. And it passed 15 to seven to go on a trial basis for one year. And then throughout that preseason, you know, because guys like Red Auerbach in particular was leading the, cor- the course against like, what the hell is this? This is stupid. They had to sort of be like, actually, it's not going to change that game that much, even though, you know, even though we tried to rush it through. So that's the current that it comes in. And because of that, it takes a while for people to maybe a decade for people to even really use at all. It starts to get used more often kind of in the late 80s to early 90s. There's a period where the the three point line moves in. They move it back. But it's still kind of very much uh, you're allowed to take that shot if you're good at it type of thing. There's this fear of chaos kind of resulting from long rebounds or undisciplined. Like, you know, the because for so long the game was all two-pointers, there's not really a functional difference between a two-point shot, a two-foot shot, and an eight-foot shot. So everybody was trying to get the ball to the two-feet shot. It took a while for that to be unlearned. And then you had at the turn of the century in the 2000s, there's a couple big rule changes that are open, slowly open the game up. The illegal defense being, you know, take get disavowed in 2001 is a huge one that there's a whole chapter on. I don't want to spoil too much of that, but I think that rule change is much significantly underrated. And then you obviously have the hand checking rules coming in in 2004. And then that first year, Phoenix come bursts onto the scene and shows the power of the three. Uh, and with the way they play and they slowly nudge people more towards that. But of course, Phoenix doesn't win it at all. So it's still like a little bit delayed. Um, I think the same number of percentage of shots were threes in 2008 and 2012. And then San Antonio comes in, Miami and San Antonio, their rivalry kind of shoves it up another level. And then you have like the, the Warriors coming in. And that's at that point, it kind of really just all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, this device we can use to 
so chaos, not just to shoot threes. And once you get to that point, then combined with the analytics movement that was like, hey, three points is three is more than two. Um, I don't know. I learned that in fourth when I was four. Like, so you probably should learn that too. Those two kind of forces kind of create this chain reaction that gives us the the game we have today. And I, like I said, there's a whole chapter. I call it a holy war between like Houston and Golden State. It's like the art versus science of this, where Golden State's like kind of envisioning this as like a, a chaos inducer. So it's not really as much about the long shots. Obviously, they have amazing shooters, but it's more we're going to start our plays out here. We're going to kind of use this to kind of just all this cascading movement to make it feel like a storm. And Houston, who's just like, you know, it's worth more points, so let's just shoot them instead. And so you've got those two sects that kind of compete against each other and push the rest of the league forward to where we are today. You know, that's why, I mean, like I said, the Warriors are the main character of this era because they won. But the Rockets are just as important to kind of how the look and feel of the game is right now, even by not winning. You know, sometimes it's the teams that are willing to try crazy stuff like them that really influence the game. So that's about a rough summary of where we're at with the three. Hopefully that that summarized it. I think I basically just told my first yeah. two chapters like to the world. So now you don't have to buy the book, but no, but I think that's fascinating how you describe the kind of contrast between the warriors using the three as a form of chaos to scramble defenses and really get into a situation where they're getting eat. Cause you know, I've heard a lot about how the warriors three point offense is really a lot about actually getting easy looks at the rim more right. as much as it is about getting threes. Whereas the rockets have this super, data-based analytics driven mathematics approach of if we just chuck a million threes eventually the opponent will not be able to come back it's it's a really fascinating styles contrast now and houston wanted to get layups too the same thing i think it's more so it is that but it's also just are we generating the threes off moving or are we standing really far away yeah that's i think Uh, the kind of real contrast there So speaking of kind of the three-point revolution and its evolution over time, you know, one thing that kind of struck me as a fan thinking about basketball is that I I admittedly did not follow the game as closely as I do now, but the Warriors kind of came about as a dynasty really when I was in college and like my last year of college. And one thing I remember specifically is that while a lot of people were starting to shoot more threes and people could kind of see that that was a thing, the Warriors really did take the league by surprise to just the sheer level of commitment that they were going to do uh, that as the kind of staple of their offense. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. The Celtics are doing press conferences for the finals, like as we speak. And Al Horford uh, was just on the podium. And one thing that he he was talking about the kind of evolution of the league and One thing that he says, and I'll just read it here, is that, um, referring to the league itself, it started to shift. Guys shooting mid-rangers a little more. I started to do that. Our GM in Atlanta told me, entering my third or fourth year, which is around 2011, right around the kind of rise of the Warriors, you're going to have to change the way that you play and start practicing corner threes. And I think that leads me to a really interesting question, which is, it seems like the Warriors kind of took people by surprise, but at the same time, there's also this sense around the league that's kind of lingering that eventually the three-point offense is going to be a bigger thing. Did this sneak up on people or were the kind of savvy, smarter GMs 
just kind of waiting for a team like the Warriors to happen. And really the that extends beyond the GMs to just the league in general. Yeah, I mean, I think it was the extent that like kind of the game was stretching out, I think it was going to happen gradually. I mean, I think Phoenix, just the way the Suns play under D'Antoni and how they inspired the Spurs with their corner three, they've been, we're thinking about that from like a kind of tactical, uh, this is a shorter shot for three and this is good spacing element well before. The Warriors, what they did though, is they inverted the fabric of the game where their offense is outside in. Every, if you look at like kind of where all the actions that they run, they don't have like kind of, they obviously, they post up to pass out. They don't have like hard rollers really, or they didn't in that time. They didn't have these like kind of powerful, like kind of drivers, like frankly, like a Jason Tatum or a Jalen Brown, um, who would could kind of use the space, like kind of the post LeBron type of thing, you use the spacing drive. Their line of scrimmage essentially was well out beyond the three point line because Curry would get these screens from everywhere. He'd be liable to fire up from anywhere off any type of movement pattern. So he could fire up off the dribble. He could fire up off screens. He could fire up on transition. You never really knew. And so they basically made it so that they would draw entire defenses out to the three-point line, and then they would go to the basket. And that really wrecked the fabric of how the whole sport has been played, where whether it's via post-up or via drive, it's always – Let's get to the paint and then kick out. Now, that's still the way it is for a lot of teams. And, you know, I don't want to say that the Warriors replace them. I think, again, the Celtics are a really good t- example of that. They're more in the Houston. Houston was an extreme get the ball into the paint and kick out team. They just spread even really far. But I think that's where the Warriors kind of surprised people is the degree to which they shot threes, not after – exploring to get twos not as a counter to something but as this is where our plays are and you're going to have to be drawn out to here and then we're going to cut behind you from that so i think it was just a very different way of thinking and i think frankly the audacity of the shot attempts was a surprise you know even al horford taking a spot up corner three is a very controlled like this the difference between the Suns and the warriors that the Suns had like they ran Steve Nash and Murray pick and roll, Steve Nash, whatever pick and roll. The baseline of what they did, like the input to get the threes was pretty consistent. The Warriors were the first team that just challenged that entirely, where they said, you're not even going to know where we're going to shoot these threes from, what type of action we're going to shoot these threes on, who's going to shoot it positionally, whether it's off the dribble or not. And I think that's what caught people by surprise, where you're just covering space and movement in a totally different way. Uh, I don't know. That that to me is what sort of stunned people. Um, that plus the absence of some of the more traditional, like kind of post-up driving type of elements that create this inside play where you're no longer, instead of ramming the ball into the rim, you're sort of abdicating the space and charging it. A lot more capture the flag than it is, I don't know, rugby. No, rugby. Okay. So speaking of rugby and it's very stout <laughs> defenses, uh, there's, there's a saying that the NBA is more or less a copycat league. I mean, even Steve Kerr has admitted to lifting uh, plays from Brad Stevens when he was still coaching 
but not everyone zigs. Sometimes people zag. And in your book, you cover also defense, the history of defense. Um, could a little you tell less us in detail, bit? but yes. Could you tell us a little bit about like how people have adapted to this three-point revolution defensively? Yeah. Well, so there, there are two sort of... First of all, I don't think they adapted very well until recently. Um, it's sort of this story can be told kind of in two different on two different levels. I think the one is schematically like every, if everything's a pick and roll, how do we defend pick and roll? And because the, the illegal defense rules made it so that it was less fruitful to like just throw the ball to the guy in isolation and just everybody stands because you can't double you had to either double team all the way or you had to stay on the guys man that's what illegal defense getting getting rid of that in 2001 change so then the pick and roll becomes like this sort of the it the dominant play of the league right and so then the question is how do we defend this uh and you know initially the thought was well let's put two on the ball let's show and recover right uh, that was kind of how it was in the illegal defense days where let's like jump out to distract them and then let's run back to our men. And then I think um, it became more of like when the heat were really thriving, there was this school of thought or the Thibodeau zone defense that mm-hmm. was being played. There was a school of thought of, you know, two on the ball, let's pressure the ball and trap and zone up off the ball. And we're going to do it that way. And then as teams started to spread out, you know, the thought was, maybe more like the Indiana Pacers S style. Let's play two on two. Let's keep our big man at the rim. Let's make you shoot two point jumpers. And we're going to stop all that movement, that ball movement that would create the good threes. Right. And so that happens for a while. And then the Warriors and the Rockets and other teams come along and say, Oh, what happens if we just shoot threes instead? And the math doesn't really work that well anymore. So Roy Hibbert's actually a really funny, interesting, um, case study for this era he goes from being the dominant defender in the league to out of the league in three years yep. and it's very much because this concept of the deep drop defense as a pick and roll is sort of um challenge and then that leads to sort of the switching thing where the warriors kind of really say okay we're still going to play the play two on two but now we're going to be more flexible with our matchups we're going to play more like-sized players we're going to have draymond green who can jump out jump here jump there and like basically vaporize the whole point of setting a screen if we're just going to switch it and i think over time teams really tried to do a lot of that and found it was a lot harder than it looked uh, found new ways to actually do it. You know, the sophistication of whether it's contact switching down below or do you need to have make contact as you switch? Uh, that whole thing plays out. You get this series with the Warriors and the Rockets in 2018, which is just a switch fest and a target fest. Uh, and that sort of creates that. And now we're kind of in what I call a post-switch world. You know, the Celtics are known for having the switch everything defense, right? But they don't necessarily switch everything. Exactly. Because what they do is it, you're not – your pick-and-roll defense cannot be one scheme. It has to be a, a raw set of principles that can be applied to many schemes. And I actually think Miami is a really good example of this, the team they just played. That's a team that plays, like, so many hybrid man-zone variants, you know, throughout the course of a game – but they all have the same general principle, which is we're going to help five men in the paint and we're going to make you kick out. Like we're going to protect the paint collectively. We're not going to let you pass that first line of defense. 
you know, we're going to have, so no matter what style of play we play, whether we're switching, whether we're hedging, whether we're in a zone, whether we're in zone A, zone B, zone C, zone G, it's the same idea. And that's kind of where on a granular level, on a larger level, it has evolved. And again, the Celtics are, like you said, they don't switch all the time. You know, they do a lot of switching, but what they really do is containment. And whether that's done via switching or whether that's done via Robert Williams being the guy on the on the worst shooter and coming towards the rim and kind of making that area no fly zone, it, you can mold the two concepts. And then I think in addition to that, this is what the last chapter starts to get into and what I think is a one reason why this year defense really reigns supreme a lot more than usual in the playoffs is the techniques of how do we cover out here and back here have created a situation where the players felt like we've been closing out on shooters all wrong for years and years and years. You know, we've been trying to chop our feet and like, that's just not a good way to cover the court. So they've been do different techniques for how to cut, have players kind of go from inside the lane to swarm out to shooters without losing balance. There's been yeah, a lot of I've that going on. Of yeah. Like I, I remember a lot more, for example, illegal defenses, people coming up underneath people's airspace. And that seems to be happening less than it used to. Yeah, absolutely. Because people are going like side by their side instead of directly. Yes. Yeah. There's a, you'll, you'll notice if you watch the footwork with the, the side, what they do is they'll, they'll take these kind of big steps. They'll get to a point where they stop and then they're going to kind of take this long lunge leap out. Actually, the Celtics are kind of pioneers in closeout defense. Like they, I just they thought they were big here. They have always, I believe, had – they're like the one – usually like teams do not have any control over how well you shoot the three. Yeah. The Celtics are like the one exception, and it's because of this. They were one of the first teams to realize this. So, yeah, you kind of you'll, – you'll take these steps, you'll stop, and then you'll kind of fly again, lunge – out far but not jumping high lunging far so you're kind of in the airspace of the shooter but not directly in on them you're not like closing out directly square to them but as you do that you'll sort of lift one of your arms to the side in order to get and that way you can kind of jump back in the position so these are techniques that i think teams had to fail at to fit players had to fail to relearn um so there's a lot of that so you end up getting this world where like i i say i said this a few times it's more like an NFL style defense where are you in man? Are you in zone? Are you in cover two? Are you in cover three? I don't know. You guys may yeah. be more football fans than me, but you're not really, you're kind of doing a little bit of a hybrid and the goal is to close space, not to guard your man. It's really so, interesting. Yeah. No, thinking about how like the Brad Stevens Celtics teams is true of them as well. They were weirdly good at defending the three and they were good every year when, yeah. you know, usually three point defense is something that's highly variable on a year to yeah. year basis. It goes back feel, to Thibodeau all the way back to when Thibodeau was there. Yeah. And I feel like part of you, you see that kind of in the play of Marcus Smart, who, I mean, I honestly cannot remember the last time Marcus Smart fouled somebody on a three point shot. He fouls people mm-hmm. a lot. But he's really good at chopping his feet, getting his arms up, and not actually making contact with yeah, people. Or not chopping his feet, as it were. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. No, it's it's really interesting that you said that. Yeah, and, and honestly, his defensive uh, player of the year award, now maybe it was just he's keeping the seat warm for Draymond Green um, because Draymond didn't play enough games. But I do think that the fact that he's a defensive player of the year and the fact that that race was all – like 
so random this year. There were so many different candidates. It was very hard Michael to tell. Bridges, a wing also. Pretty yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, where's, how do you rate Jerry? There's very, a lot of different types of guys on that list. So you did have the traditional big guys, but you also had Mikel Bridges. Like you said, you had Bam, you had uh, um, Jared Jackson, and then you had Smart, and you had like Drew Holiday. And to me, that actually illustrates what's happening to defense now. It's very it's it's very hard to pin down positional responsibility for the longest time i think defense was caught in this we need to be disciplined at doing the same thing every time that's how we win it's like more like kind of soldiers following orders type of deal where we we're drilling on like kind of this is what we do and as offense became more multidimensional and more spaced. It turns out that the solution for that is to be multidimensional and flexible yourselves. I think we're starting to see that happen. You know, I wrote a big thing about Herb Jones for New Orleans for 538. He's like a guy that's very much on the modern precipice of this where he's kind of, he covers space, not a player. And Marcus Smart is one of the first, you're right. What position even is he guarding is sort of a really tricky question. Um, stretch six yeah <laughs> so yeah it's just it, it, to me that's what's sort of starting to happen so i i foresee many murky as hell who the hell is the defensive player of the year this year conversations in the future i was wondering what was driving that and now i think you've finally given me something to kind of wrap my head around in a more comprehensive way because i've been asking people if the nature of NBA defense changing is why, and I haven't really gotten a good good answer until now. So thank you for that. Oh well, I mean it's just my, it's just a crack theory. I think it's, I think wrong, it's accurate it, because I mean, if it, if it was just Marcus Smart, I would think that the the Draymond Green seat warming theory would be a much more likely outcome. But the fact that Michael Bridges and he far and away had the most votes for that award, I think, is telling. Yeah, I mean, you look also, I think it's some of it is also, I think, residue from how the Bucks defended with Drew Holiday and P.J. Tucker last year in the finals. But, yeah, I mean, I mean, Drew Holiday gave an interview where he's, like last year where he was like, why is it that guards never win this award? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if guards should win this award. It's a, it's a tough question because, you know, there is a legit argument that a guard can only do so much. Their arms are only so long. They can only cover so many different types of players. Smart is kind of a, maybe a slight exception to this because of his build, but, you know, Mikael Bridges can't just, you can't plant Mikael Bridges at the rim and shuts off the whole court. Like is Robert Williams actually the most valuable Celtic defender? Is it Al Horford? It's tough to say, but I, I think that that's sort of, we're getting to a point where that complexity is now baked into defense in a way that it's almost like, you know, 20 years ago, you couldn't, double team really at all or you had to double team you couldn't like load up to the ball like at all and now 20 years later defenses are basically just like sort of playing space like a football defense i think it's an interesting thing that's going on and boston is a the poster child to that because like you said they don't just switch they switch a lot they switch all over the place but the foundation of their defense is robert williams playing the back line unless it's not <laughs> and then it's what is it <laughs> you know uh but it's just they're all big and long and they all take up space they're not even really guarding people they're guarding areas 
Yeah. And, you know, I think this series in some ways will kind of serve as a referendum on like, is Marcus Smart actually, you know, a defensive player of the year impact level guy? Because with Golden State, a team that, you know, is prides itself on just being incredible from deep. If Marcus Smart can make a significant impact on their perimeter players and show that no guards not only are important uh, in this context and can be as important on the defensive end as bigs, but in some ways are critical in the three point era, that could be a really big moment for that. Wish he was healthy. (laughs) Wish he was fully healthy. That's that's the one downside for Celtics fans, I think. It's true, although Marcus seems to have expressed uh, no reservations about playing whatsoever, and I think Hime Odoka feels the same way. Um, so, Mike, any other elements of this book that we should know about that didn't make the pre-order page description before we move into a little bit more focus on this series? Yeah, what was even on the pre-order page description? <laughs> I don't even know. I didn't write it. Um, yeah, I mean, I just think the big thing to stress is that it's not about threes. Like, there are no shot charts in this book. There, there's no reference to shot charts, really. Well, maybe a little slight reference. The three-point thing is the backdrop. We are. This is like, okay, threes are here now. What does that meant for the shape of the game? It's much more like that. And um, the beginning is kind of, again, here has, here's how we got here. But once you get past that, it's very much saying – it's very much thinking about like just every element of the game as in, okay, now it's all out here. How did we get to the point to reimagine this and what does it mean going forward? So, you know, I, I've had a number of people ask me like, Hey, is, how is this different than sprawl ball by Kirk Goldsberry, a really good book about the three point era. And I said, well, because you know, his is about the three threes and mine is almost post threes. It's great follow-up. Um, so I hope, but um, yeah, it's, it's about what happens when you play on a court that's this much bigger. It's not the threes are kind of the backdrop to why we're out here, but it's not really, except for maybe the beginning. And then there's one chapter on sort of shooting form uh, and shooting um, gravity and sort of how we get shots off faster. It's not really a book about threes. It's about what has the fact that the three is such a huge element of the game done to change these other fundamentals like dribbling, like, like dribbling and movement, vision, court vision, uh, defensive schemes, uh, just the pick and roll in general. Uh, pace is a huge element of the book. What is that? Um, so that's probably the best thing I can say. And isn't there something in there about how it's like a top down or sort of spread out what was the mapped out like sort of perspective yeah, or something, something like, that? like that i actually thought that was a really good way of putting it it's sort of this is the thing i love about basketball it's the only sport of the major sports where everybody's in the frame at once mm-hmm. when you're watching on tv and so I, I i just hope that like kind of it will allow you if you could take a step back and see everything that's going on you can kind of identify where the levers are a little bit better in an nba game and appreciate just what it means for a game to be played in all that space. So uh, we will get into the matchup in just a little bit, um, but great preview of the book. It's, you know, in stores, November 1st, uh, definitely check it out. Fascinating stuff. Um, Just before we do uh, get into the matchup though, we do want to check in with our friends at bet online. Justin question for you. If you had to guess 
Who do you think sportsbooks would be favoring in this NBA Finals matchup? Well, I won't lie, I already know. But if I had to judge based on public opinion, I would actually have the Warriors in front. I would also base around public opinion. Well, I don't know. It's tricky. I think it, I think public opinion is pretty divided on this one. Bet Online has the Celtics at plus one thirty-five versus the Dubs, who are minus one fifty-five. And if you want to lay some action either on the Seas or the Warriors, you can head over to BetOnline.ag. BetOnline continues to be the number one source for all your betting needs and sports info. Find all the latest odds, news, and sports developments, including this year's basketball playoffs, Major League Baseball scores, fights, and even next season's NFL futures. BetOnline is your continued source for all your sports wagering needs, including live betting and, of course, your favorite Vegas casino and poker games. It's really easy to get started, so head to the website today or use your mobile device to sign up today and use our promo code CLNS50, that's CLNS50, to receive your 50% off welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online when the, bleh, bet online where the game starts. All right, so let's get into this matchup. The finals are coming up tomorrow. It's going to be an epic series. And Mike, we would love to hear some of your thoughts on it. So um, let's start with this. What is your initial impression on this series? Just kind of from a basketball fan, observer, writer perspective, what are you looking for here? Basically, great contrast in styles. I'm looking forward to that. Transition plays is the key to the series. Uh, one of the things that I think has happened to the league in general that is very well reflected in this series is there are no fast breaks anymore. There are no half-court possessions. There's just everybody's playing fast all the time. And in particular, what you do on one end affects whether you create a fast break or whether you flow into your early offense. It changes the conditions of what the next play is. And so from, certainly from a Boston perspective, this is the big question I think you have is this is a team that sometimes makes some kind of poor decisions. They kind of, whether it's turning the ball over, taking bad shots, driving into traffic, that's their Achilles heel. I think you guys all know this. So, and Golden State is the most dangerous punishing your mistakes team in the league. Can Boston ball control well enough and lean into their own good habits to stop the Warriors from getting those free points. It's you could frame it as half court first transition, but I just don't like that framing, but it is that same idea. The slower, the more um, the boss is able to set their defense and the more their defense can flow into their offense to advantage Boston. But if Boston makes bad decisions, if Boston kind of falls into sort of this, dribbling habit if Boston over targets the wrong defenders if Boston's three-point shots don't fall uh and they're not the shots that they want to get but they're the shots that the Warriors want to give them and they're the Warriors are able to take the ball off the rim and just kind of get out and run and negate that half-court offense it's going to be a long series for them but that's the thing I kind of look at right there that's the key there's actually been some commentary I've heard about the Celtics getting into their offense a little slow when they start. And that seems to ring true in the eye test so far. 
I'm curious whether or not that is partially an artifact of health and the path that they chose to get to the finals. We didn't really choose it entirely, but it seems to me that, you know, they've been trying to squeeze out whatever little bit of rest they can uh, throughout these, you know, longer and harder opponents that they've had to deal with. Uh, I'm curious, do you, do you think that, you know, maybe even just like speeding up getting into their offense a little bit in this series might be helpful? Oh yeah. I mean, that certainly would be um, the faster you get into stuff, the better you're able to run through, through certain things. Like, I mean, I think there's no question about that. The one thing that's going to be a challenge and, but also maybe an advantage to them is they, they're coming off playing two ferocious defenses that are also offensively challenged in Milwaukee without Chris Middleton and then Miami. So just in terms of tenor and speed and pace and flow, like Golden State, the way they play, they do sort of nudge you a little bit sometimes into your own like kind of better paced kind of cells. So I do think that that may just sort of happen naturally where you're no longer kind of playing a team that like is trying to get you into the mud as obviously, you know, you're no longer playing a team that is trying to just ram through you so you're just sort of tired in that way. It's a different sort of exhaustion. So I, I do think that's going to happen. But, yeah, I mean, certainly the quicker you start your play, the better. Um, I actually – that's why I think it's it's kind of more what happens, like Celtics offense going to Warriors defense that will decide – going to Warriors transition that will decide the series rather than the other way around. Because I, I would think that – I mean, some of it depends on Williams's health, like Golden State. I think yeah. they had the most mm-hmm. trouble when Steven Adams was playing with Jaron Jackson in that Grizzlies series. But in general, I think Gold, Boston will do a decent enough job, as decent as anyone could, half court to half court, guarding even the Warriors. The problem will end up being, like if I think, if their offense is just, whether it's they're not fast-paced enough and they're working against the clock or whether they're too frantic or whether they're whatever – that those exchanges to me are going to be the bigger concern. I think Boston will have stretches where they'll be able to, they'll look nice on offense. They'll find the weak point to target and it'll all go gravy. And then they'll have some stretches where the shots aren't going in. The key will be, can we limit the stretches where we're overreacting to the shots not going in? And we're like, kind of, you know, Jason Tatum's trying to do too much or Jalen Brown's driving into a crowd and doesn't see the open guy or Marcus Smart is taking a three that maybe is a little off kilter. Those sorts of plays, are, I think, are the key to avoid. Speaking of three-point shooting, so um, both teams in this series shoot a lot of threes. Boston shoots, uh, according to... Um, I, I don't exactly basketball remember. reference. This is basketball reference. Yeah. According to basketball reference, Boston has shot the ninth most threes in the season. Uh, Golden State has shot the third most. Boston's percentage is worse at 35.6, which is the 14th best mark in the league than Golden State, uh, who shoots it at the seventh best clip in the league, 36.4%. My question to you, Mike. How much do these, I mean, that that's really close, 35.6 to 36.4. That's, I mean, that's less than a full percentage. Um, so how much do seemingly small percentage differences like this matter when it comes to the offense of these two teams heading into this series? It depends on what you, what you mean by matter and like what context. So what, one of the things that's there's a, one of the things that's interesting, actually Marcus Smart is very much the poster child for this, who's featured in the book, is 
when you come to think about it, right, Marcus Smart is seen as this shooter who shoots too many threes given his percentage. What is the difference between him and someone who shoots 38%? Like over the course of the season, it's not very much. And more importantly, nobody guards Marcus Smart like he's a 32% shooter, although I guess Miami did by the end. You have to really kind of tell yourself, remind yourself, because he just acts like a 38% shooter and you know, the split second decisions you make there as a defense are very hard to, to sort of suss out, you know, is this Marcus smart for there? You have to almost kind of broadly categorize shooters where it's like, that's a do not close out versus a close out a little bit versus a close out really hard. And like Grant Williams, who shot, I think 43% from three this year is a very good three point shooter. He gets defended the same way as Marcus smart. So it's obviously not about percentage in that respect. And the swings can be very high, right? So there'd be, it's not like he's a consistently a 32% shooter or golden state, like those numbers being so close are So like you're, you're reflecting something interesting here where yeah. Average over 82 games are that close, but like, that doesn't mean that they're shooting 30. What was it? 30. I don't even remember what numbers you said. No, 35.6 yeah. or 36.4. You're not doing that every game. So in that respect, there is a lot to the idea that there's a make or miss league. And, and, for sure. The thing that I think is noteworthy that you see in the playoffs is that three, there is nothing magical about a three all by itself, right? It is literally just you're taking a shot from behind the line. You can take a three while spinning five times in the air and flinging at the backboard, or you can take a three with nobody near you and you're like, you know, you can like dribble five times and shoot a free throw. Like that's really where the difference is. It's just a distance. So the threes that Boston shoots are just very different than the threes that Golden State shoots for that reason. So the only commonality that unites them is how far they are. So Golden State in particular, with the way they play, I think Dallas is the way they play Dallas is really instructive to how I think they're going to play Boston is they're going to say, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, you're not getting to the rim. We're going to show out on you when you try to go at Steph or Jordan Poole or whoever. Um, we're going to close the rim off and we're going to make you pass the ball to Marcus Smart, to Al Horford, to Grant Williams, to Derek White. And we're going to live with them shooting spot up threes with us again, with our new improved closeout technique running out, out at them. Golden State's threes are not like that. Golden State's threes are like kind of whiplash movement and you don't know where they're coming from. Um, so just the effect of what those threes mean Boston is going to be channeled into shooting those types of threes. Golden State, Boston's not going to want them to shoot those types of threes, presumably. I guess that's sort of the question of how you balance that. So in that sense, can Boston find ways to generate better looks for the threes, the guys that Golden State wants to shoot, or perhaps even not get those the ball of them and get – better shots for your better players to shoot. Like, can you align the floor so that Jason Tatum is the guy catching the ball on a kickout? And to me, that will determine a lot. But at the same time, it is also true that, like, you know, if Grant, if the Grant Williams goes four for nine instead of two for nine, that's going to make a big difference on the series. Yeah, and I think one thing that I've been kind of watching over the playoffs is that when the Celtics are moving the ball at their best, one common feature that I see in their offense a lot 
is the way that they get shots for their best guys is by having their best guys actually initiate the plays, but with the intention of passing rather than uh, going to the rim. So I think about mm-hmm. a couple of plays in the Bucks series where Jason Tatum drove to the rim. Uh, and, you know, I, at the time I was like, you know, locked in and I was screaming, like, just take the shot. And instead of doing that, what he did is he would hit Robert Williams or Al Horford with a quick dump off pass and then reset behind the arc. Uh, after having gone game, through another screen. There's a lot of that in game two, right? I remember yes, there was there a lot two. of that in game That's two. That's a warrior I, specialty too, by the way, the like pass and relocate thing. Yeah, and I feel like the Celtics in some ways, if they want to get those looks, can kind of give the Warriors a taste of their own medicine by doing a lot of these movement-based sets. But those sets require a ton of stamina and a lot of health and a lot of really good screening to be able to run consistently. And I think kind of getting back to the idea of why does health matter so much in this series, a big part of it is just you're going to have to have a lot of legs to run that offense on a consistent basis. Mm-hmm. It's going to be interesting. Unless, again, you the other option is you try to induce these switches, and then you maybe slow the game tempo down where – you know, the, the pet Celtics play is, you know, smart Tatum or white Tatum kind of one, three action, whether they force a switch or whether they force a trap and that guy rolls into the short roll area or he fades for three. I mean, no team has really found it fully found an answer for that throughout the playoffs. When you put those two guys in some sort of two man action, because the flexibility of smart is he can post a smaller guy. He can slip. He can be the ball handler or the screener. So if you're Boston, one every every approach that Boston has in this series, whether it's what you're talking about, like driving to passers, driving to score, whether it's this, the balance between doing it right and triggering good ball movement that is sort of based on what the Warriors help does and sort of throwing them off and then like kind of creating these openings versus getting baited into what the Warriors help wants you to do is so thin. Yeah. Like it's it's not a matter of it's so microscopic even, you know. It's the difference between uh was it game 5 or game 6 where Tatum has that spin move and PJ Tucker strips him at the end of the game. On Max Struess was that game 5 or yeah. game 6? Yeah. I, so, I've burned that series out of my brain. Yeah. I want to think about it again. <laughs> right. So all series, like they they would sort of leverage the help and then Tatum would try to they would do this thing where they'd use Robert Williams to like pin in Bam out of bio under the hoop so that the space right around the hoop was open. And then Tatum would sort of slowly walk the switch down and then get to where he wanted. Like and he would do that to Max Struce. The line between that spinning off him to like kind of walk someone down and then get a shot and spinning off them and losing sight of what you're doing. And PJ Tucker comes up to the strip, tiny, very, very thin. The Warriors series is going to be the exact same way for them, whatever they do. And it's going to be very hard in real time for us to notice what the difference is. It's, but it, you'll notice it, I think based on sort of how open the middle of the floor is Hmm. not necessarily where it's beat, but it's going to be very challenging. It's, it's a very hard thing to do. And even if you are successful at like kind of creating the right play, you might kick out the Derek White or Marcus Smart, and he might not be shooting well that game. So that's going to be – It's going to. I think it's one reason why the Celtics have been so up and down in these postseasons because that line between the right play 
and the play the defense wants you to make is like razor thin and is affected by such microscopic kind of spatial elements that you end up getting a situation where they're they just their offense kind of goes like this it goes up and down and up and down so much and people will tend to say it's make or miss like the threes they're making but i think it's something more microscopic going on that's harder to see I realize I should be clearing this up for you, and I'm just made it more complicated. But no, it's good. You know, I think that's kind of that's kind of what the key will be. Well, I think this is really high level stuff, and you know, it's important because in a series as closely contested as I think this one is going to be, it's the small things that really make a difference like that. Um, and you know, there's a lot of talk about kind of what can we learn from the regular season about these matchups? Obviously the Celtics have played the Golden State Warriors twice. Now they split both meetings, um, but both teams were at, at, in both of these games, both, both of them were compromised from a health standpoint. Um, it was kind of the regular season, which as we know is never as intense as these playoff games. Yeah. How, um, how are the Warriors compromised from a health standpoint? Can you remind me? Well, oh, let's uh, not talk about that. Let's Steph right Curry, uh... Steph Curry may have not played uh, <laughs> that, game, uh, that second game, which may have may have had something to do with a controversial play that Marcus Smart may or may not have made. <laughs> um, we don't have to get too into that, but um, I'm, I am wondering. You know, there's a lot of talk that you can just kind of throw the regular season out. What can we learn from the regular season between these two, if anything? That's a good question. I do think that in general. Sometimes we overthrow the regular season out with matchups. Um, I think, for example, you saw in last year's finals, you know, with the Suns and the Bucks, if you really paid attention to the games they played in the regular season that year, they were dogfights. And so I was like, this could be a great finals. Like the the intensity of their dogfights and just the terms that they fought on the contrast and styles. And lo and behold, it was a great finals. So sometimes I think you really can learn a lot. To me, I mean, it's tricky because in the first matchup, not only Poole and Clay Thompson didn't play, and the second matchup, obviously, you had where you had, I believe, was it after Robert Williams' injury that they matched up the second time? Uh, or was it I, right before? It was right around. I yeah. Remember if he was in that or not. I don't right. remember him playing in it. So probably, probably uh, after. And of course, the first matchup, Boston is still their crappy first half version of the team. Yeah, and I think the... COVID, COVID was running through Boston's roster pretty seriously yeah. at that point. For sure. The one thing I think you can say is, you know, with Golden State, so much of, and this was, I think, the huge key to why they beat Dallas so easily, is their ability to have their secondary players kind of attack, not necessarily like closeouts or rotations, but just sort of the like kind of shifting that you do when you're switching or when you're sort of aligning to the ball. There's like a little bit of like a movement back to that guy. So you you kind of swing it around to the next side and like then the attack comes. And the first time they played, I think Andrew Wiggins had a really big game, if I recall. I think he had like 27 or something the first time they played. He's a key player in that regard. He was a massive player in the Dallas series in that regard where they Dallas would overload to the main guys and their bet was we can live with Andrew Wiggins kind of attacking a closeout. And Andrew Wiggins shredded that stuff. He was very aggressive at going at those second side, that second side, those rotations, you know, going at not a weak defender. Uh, like Dallas's case, it was Luka Doncic, who's a weak defender. Here it might be just a smaller defender or a slower, def- slightly slower defender. And how well does he do in those sort of kind of catch and go situations? 
will be a huge key to the series. And I think Boston as well with Derek White and with Smart, how do they do in those catch-and-go elements of the game where you're loading up and gold same particular is going to be more daring. I think with the way they rotate, cause they're going to be more, they're going to play more zone. They're going to play more trapping. It is very much like kind of how well do they kind of make decisions and get downhill and pressure from those points, almost like you're using the main side of the action as a decoy to kind of draw them out. And Boston got really good at this with Bam out of bio in the previous series, you know, where you would induce the switch, for you out of buyer, you would force him out and then you'd swing the ball around to someone else attacking downhill and they'd have nobody at the rim. Golden State offers similar vulnerabilities if you can maybe draw Dream on that and maybe uh, Kevon Looney isn't playing on. On both ends, Andrew Wiggins is kind of that swing guy. On offense, does he attack those sorts of plays? He makes good decisions. And on defense, is he stout enough where if you draw uh, Draymond out, can he be like a help defender? Can he sort of protect that lane? When you draw Jordan Poole and you sort of pressure him at the point of it, pressure by him at the point of attack, you know, can those sort of secondary chess pieces really uh, protect the rim at a decent level? And for Boston, that's, you know, Al Horford and Grant Williams when Robert Williams is in the game, but Grant Williams when he's out of the game, Marcus Smart, that's, I think, where kind of the series may be won and lost. And that's why I worry a little bit about how healthy Robert Williams is. You know, I think if Robert Williams was fully healthy, I would like Boston's chances a lot more in this series. Uh, if he can get back healthy, that would be a huge boost to them. If not, now you're just smaller on the backside and you have just less flexibility. Even, you know, if you force Rob out to guard Steph and try to swing around, you still at least have Horford or Grant Williams or Smart on reserve. Now, if you don't have Rob to out there you're forcing one of those guys out and then it's like the domino effect of having a smaller guy on that rotation i think may impact the series significantly so that that may be where the battleground is i was going to ask you about that uh particularly you know do you think that maybe this might be a slightly i mean i know he's not going to be anywhere near the level of either of any of the bigs really that he'll be replacing but do you think this is a series we might actually see daniel tice make an appearance particularly if they need to give uh rob some time off might. I'm not sure how well he'll do. Yeah. <laughs> he's sort of, in some ways, he's kind of like the worst type of big you want to play against the Warriors because it's not like he he doesn't like offer I, really I, super I quick. can think of a worse one. I'll be perfectly honest. Right, Luke, Luke, we will Luke talk Cornette. about him on this podcast. <laughs> Luke, Luke Cornette would be bad. So would, um, oh, I think I know who you're talking about. Huh? Yes, you do. Yeah, I think okay. you do. The guy that the coach said you can't play. That may or may not have happened. I will yeah. Occam's razor. Right. <laughs> but yeah, no, I think Tice, Tice is rough too because he's just sort of okay at everything. He doesn't have, he doesn't give you an advantage either way. He's not a great rim protector, nor is he a great switch defender. Whereas at least Robert Williams is like kind of plus at one of those things. Would you they may have him? to play him though. You Would know? you sit him for game one considering that he'll get like basically a week off? No. I don't know how healthy it is he is, but like know he looked like he was basically hopping on one leg in game seven yeah so i mean how do you know that giving him two more days would actually help you don't necessarily it's a tough one the one thing that's going to be interesting is this happens a lot when you play golden state is like you go from playing a team like miami or brook or or, uh even brooklyn and milwaukee which is just a heavy target the mismatch type of team i mean maybe miami a little less so but and then you go to playing the warriors and just the way to play like i i think that 
Dallas didn't admit this, but I think there was a major sticker shock going from Phoenix to Golden State. Not necessarily in terms of which is harder to defend, but just stylistically, it's so different. And I could see that happening for Boston as well on a short turnaround. I don't know if that justifies wrestling Robert Williams. I don't know. I just I don't think you can really rest anyone at this stage of the season, unfortunately. Yeah, that was kind of my feeling as well. I've been hearing I'm hearing a lot of people, you know, pondering that. Uh, another alternative to that potentiality is going small. Uh, do you think that that would actually be a wise solution in this particular? You know, give maybe Derek uh, White more run, maybe run some more um, smaller lineups. What do you consider small? Just so, like, are you talking like that? Very small. I mean, like, you know, maybe. Like, are you talking like Al Horford plays all the center? One guard lineup. And Grant Williams is his back is the backup center. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. In other words, not to have two bigs on the floor. I think mostly have for for the season. I mean, they're going to have to play like that for a good portion of the series anyway, whether Robert Williams was healthy or not. So, I mean. This is a, this is one of the challenges I think for Boston is depth wise, especially now that Gary Payton the second looks like he's coming back. Like Boston is just not as deep. No, you know, and 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 they're not as deep, and they're also not as deep because they made a decision to make themselves less deep with their playing rotation much earlier than Golden State did. So if this is a game that's a war of attrition series, I don't think that favors Boston. You know, so like they, they have fewer places to turn. You know, they've got their guys. They can bundle them in very in some different ways, but there aren't a whole lot of like different avenues that they. It's not like there's a wild card player that can draw out of the rotation. There's no Nemanja Bjelica that can come in. There's no Andre Iguodala that might come in and just sort of change the series up. So I don't know if Boston's going to win the series. Like I just think it's going to have to be by playing the way they play better. Like, I don't think there's, like, any super rotational curveball up anyone's sleeve here. Most important player for each team in this series? Uh, well, Stefan, Stefan Tatum, for sure. I mean, if you're going to be, like, reductive. But if you don't want just, like, hey, star player, um, I think Robert Williams for Boston, and I think uh, Andrew Wiggins for Golden State. Interesting. For all and- the reasons we've talked about. Would but I, the real the real answer is Steph and T- is, is certainly Tatum, and I would say Steph. But if you want to kind of go for like kind of the most important non-star, I would say those two are are really essential for reasons we've talked about in this podcast. Any potential X factors that don't have to be players in the series besides health? We kind of beat that to death. What would what would be an X factor that's not a player? Um, adjustments. Uh, I don't know. You tell me. I mean, Gary Payne, the second coming back, is a big, big plus for Golden State in this series because he can guard Tatum. You can now have two guys to guard Tatum and Brown. They can, his ability to force turnovers, strip down, I think that's a huge bonus if he can get the Warriors, if can get him back. I mean, as for Boston, I mean, look, if Payton Pritchard has a really big shooting game one night, he probably can play a little more in this series. That was something I was wondering about also. I mean, he was basically unplayable the last two series, but the style of play is a lot more amenable to him being on the floor and not being basically targeted constantly. Maybe. I mean, Golden State kind of targets indirectly, more so than directly. Like, they'll, like, kind of create, align the floor so that Peyton Pritchard's got to be the low man. 
Like, I bet you're going to see a lot of that. But, yeah, I think in general you're probably right. It's a little easier to justify playing him and hiding him. Boston's really good at scramming guys out into rough spots. So, you know, he might have a game where he just doesn't miss. But, of course, the Warriors have Jordan Poole, who's gonna, who could have three of those games. Yeah, I was going to ask about Poole. What do we think for Jordan Poole this series? It seems like, on the one hand, the Warriors' small ball lineup relies a lot on his scoring. But on the other hand, if there's an obvious defensive weak link amongst the Warriors' high-minutes players, it's probably him. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that for the longest time, I've always believed that Jordan Poole was the guy that got the Warriors back to being the Warriors. And I think I wrote that to the effect, to that effect in a piece, you know, really – for 538, like really going all the way back to last year because his ability is sort of, he plays that style, but he's also got some off the dribble shake and he's able to kind of merge that style that the Warriors want to be themselves with, hey, sometimes you just need a guy that can get downhill and, you know, finish awkward scoop scoop shots and, you know, the, the ability to merge that. And then I think the playoffs have come around and yeah, there've been some tough matchups for him defensively. Uh, Memphis was a lot of a challenge with John Morant and Luca obviously was a bit of a challenge. Uh, and this series, you're right. It could offer a bit of a challenge. Um, so I could see a scenario where he's kind of, I think he's going to have a couple games where he's really significant and there might be a couple games where he doesn't play a huge role. And again, the return of Peyton really changes a lot of that calculus because now you can play Peyton and maybe, you, you, there's another guy you could play instead of pool. Um, but on this, at the, on the other hand, with Boston being so big and switchy, even if they're not only switching defense, they're just, their containment ability is really strong with their length. Sometimes you kind of just need a guy to like wiggle around that. Like you need a, you need a little, uh, yeah. What, what's the word I'm looking for? Why can't I think of it? Like a little jitterbug, like a little jitterbug to kind of like, Nip, 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 kind of yeah. roadrunner his way through that. And that's Jordan Poole. And you might have a situation where you really need that. A lot of, I think, Jordan Poole's defensive deficiencies will depend on what's happening behind him. You know, it, it's a lot like kind of, it, it's probably worth thinking about him like you thought about Tyler Hero in the last series before he got hurt. You know, he was both essential to Miami's offense and a target spot. And like a lot of the series for Miami is like, how do we keep him on the floor? Because we need him but also don't expose him and had Boston's thought process. How do we expose him? I could see a lot of the same sort of beats playing out with Jordan Poole in this series. Yeah. All right. Well, we're just about to wrap. Um, before we do, Mike, uh, anything else that you have to plug aside from the book? Uh, just read our great athletic writers. They're amazing. Right. And we're, they're, they're really good. I mean, you guys are good too. <laughs> I don't want to say. Okay. Uh, but no, Jay King, Jared Weiss for the Celtics are just terrific. And then our Warriors team is just incredible, second to none. Uh, Marcus Thompson. I mean, Marcus could make like me dribbling and shooting at my hoop outside sound poetic. Like that's how good a writer he is. And then, you know, Anthony Slater, one of the best just be writers in the country and Tim Kalakami just had a great piece today on the like weird Kevin Durant to Andrew Wiggins link that like series of transactions just uh, has like this great understanding of how the Warriors are as a culture. We're very lucky at the athletic. We, uh, we got two of our best markets in this finals. So just read them. They're going to put great stuff out and I'm just happy to be a part of it. 
So um, when and where can we find the book again? And can we pre-order it? You can pre-order it. It's available on Amazon. It's available at local bookstores. I have no preference really, but I think it's cool to promote local bookstores. So if you can order, I think all the links are on my Twitter account. Um, it's due out November 1st. We'll see if we make that preview date. Uh, we are currently just finalizing. I have some really cool graphic stuff that I'm trying to finalize with them that I think is going to be really unique and interesting that I don't want to... Um, I don't want to kind of spoil, but I think it's just a really interesting idea and just going through final edits uh, now. So I think we're still on track for November 1st is when it comes out. Uh, and yeah, you can pre-order it. Pre-order it. Um, give me a lot. And last thing I'll say is, you know, you don't have to be an X's and O's aficionado to, I hope, to appreciate it. Like the whole goal of the book for me was I have a I have a I have an uncle who's a big Celtics fan, um, mm. who's very much like kind of a like I don't want to say old school thinker, but just kind of very much like a, I like the game back in the day better type of person. Uh, and I just kept having picturing him in my head when I was writing this book. Like, how can I make a book that he would enjoy? And for him to be able to say, "Oh, I actually like this era now," like that was my goal. Mm. So it should anyone can enjoy it. I hope. I think. Well, I know I'm going to enjoy it when I pick up a copy. Thank you again for coming on the Celtics Lab podcast. We got one more question for you, and then we'll get mm -hmm. you out of here. So um, as is the case with any good finals preview podcast, we got to get to prediction time. And I'm going to give you a little bit of time to think of yours. You'll get the last word uh, while we're there. I'm going to say that let's go for series winner, how many games, finals MVP and in one sentence or so why the series was won. And I'm happy to start off. Uh, you know, it's the Celtics lab podcast. I cannot pick against my boys and I'm not going to do that. So it's going to be Boston. It's going to be a competitive six gamer. Jalen Brown is going to be your finals MVP. Like and it. the Celtics are going to win this series because they win the turnover battle. That's my take. JQ, you're up. I'm going to be boring uh, on the Celtics Wire coming out today or tomorrow. You will see a, a collaborative effort on picking the winner of this series. I went with Celtics in seven. We did not, as far as I remember, pick a series MVP. I'm going to go with Jason Tatum just because we have not seen one of those massive nuclear bomb games from him just yet. And I suspect he's going to have one. Um, so yeah, him, Celtics in seven. And that probably will surprise absolutely no one. What was game six of, or game was it game six of the Milwaukee series or game four yep. of the Milwaukee series, if not a nuclear bomb game? Game six was pretty serious. What, what, I, whatever one more, was it one like of a them? 50 pointer. I mean, like, yeah, oh, that was yeah, definitely. Justin. Yeah, no, I'm, talk, I'm, I'm talking about. like the, the how many did he score in that game? I thought he scored like 48. I thought 46. it was like 40, 40, 40, 40, okay. I thought it was like 46. 46. Yeah, huge okay, difference. Fine, oh, he he's gonna score four more points. Fine. That's All sorry. right, Mike. I, I, I'm an editor. I have to do this. No, I do. No, I have to challenge it. It's part of my nature. Um, yeah, obviously, I don't love making like perfect predictions, but I like to think of it in terms of like chances to win. I would say that if I were setting the odds of the series, it was just my head. I think the Warriors are 65 35 favorites to win. I guess that translates to Warriors and six. Sorry, guys. Uh, I, think okay. I think Steph's going to win MVP, finals MVP narrative and i think the reason is what we talked about at the jump 
Boston will be unable to keep the Warriors out of transition off their own mistakes. Corporate knowledge. They've just got too much of it, and I don't think it's going to be any kind of a shame. I'm not saying they're going to lose, but if they do lose, there's not a, a team in the league that you could have lost to that would be you know something to hang your head on more. And they'll be back, the Celtics. Well, you know, I mean, Mike, I, I'm really looking forward to your book, and it's okay that you're wrong about this, but um, we will make sure to have you back on in the offseason and other If times. it makes you feel better, I, <laughs> I thought that the first-round series was a total toss-up. I thought that Milwaukee would beat them if Middleton played. And I thought that the Suns were going to win the finals last year. And there you have it, folks. Mike Prada of The Athletic, thank you so much for coming on. We're really looking forward to checking out the book that's spaced out how the NBA's three-point revolution changed everything you thought you knew about basketball coming out in November. Um, If you would like this episode of the Celtics Lab podcast, as well as any other Celtics Lab episodes, please make sure to like and subscribe. You can find us on most podcatcher apps, Spotify, Apple, whatever you can find us. Uh, And if you like what you hear, you can also be sure to leave us a kind rating of five stars. If you don't like something or if you have a suggestion, please make sure to let us know with a comment on Twitter with hashtag CLPOD. Just know that we are right and we don't care. Um, If... And so, <laughs> yeah, doing, doing really well on this final. Um, we are always trying to be, bring you the deepest dives on Celtics coverage here at Celtics Lab. So please make sure to like, subscribe, follow, check us out for the next episode. Mike, thanks again. Thanks for having me. I did notice that you almost said we like to bait. <laughs> started. <laughs> didn't notice that. Yeah, yeah, well, this is thank you. Can... Thank you so much for having me. No, seriously, uh, thank you so much for all the kind things you said about the book. Ours, man. Yeah. All right. Catch you later. Go seas. We're in the finals. We've all spent more time with family lately. It can feel like old times, but your mind is on the future too, and what you can do to shape it. At Sandy Spring Bank, we work with clients to help them grow and protect their money with wealth management, trust services, and insurance, so they can enjoy today and ultimately pass along their wealth. We believe real banking is a conversation. Let's talk about your dreams. Visit sandyspringbank.com wealth. Wealth and insurance products are not FDIC insured, not guaranteed, and may lose value.